0: Morning. Can you hear me? Awesome. We had some mic difficulties there. Peace be with you. Um, if you have your Bibles today, uh, we're going to be in Exodus 40 to start. I'm so excited to preach today, and I'm so grateful to Pastor Matt and the other pastors for allowing me to preach. You get me, th- like, th- you know, twice within the same month, so I'm sorry. <laughs> um uh, I'm really grateful for this, uh, to preach in this uh, this Exodus series. Pastor Matt and I worked on a lot, and it's kind of been, I don't know, like it's kind of like been my baby a little bit, so I'm pretty excited about how it's gone, and I'm really excited about this sermon today. I think it's going to be really helpful. It's been helpful for me and challenging for me in preparing this week. So if you have your Bibles, you can stay seated. We're going to read two sections in Exodus 40. We're going to start in verses 1 through 15, and then we're going to jump ahead to 34 to thirty-eight, So we're going to do two sections. It's a little long, so stay seated. Hear the word of the Lord in Exodus 40. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and you shall put, put in it the ark of the testimony, and you shall screen the ark with the veil, and you shall bring in the table and arrange it, And you shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps. And you shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. And you shall set up the court all around and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and consecrate it and all its furniture so that it may become holy. You shall also anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils and consecrate the altar so that the altar may become most holy. You shall also anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water and put on Aaron the holy garments and you shall anoint him and consecrate him that he may serve me as priest. You shall bring his sons also and put coats on them and anoint them as you anointed their father that they may serve me as priests and their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. Now we're going to jump ahead to verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from the... From over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night. In the sight of all of the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. This is the word of the Lord strange, a tabernacle, building instructions, and all those things. But before we get into that, I I have this question. I want to invite you into this question that I've been asking myself over actually the last two to three years. Um, I've been trying to grow, been trying to change. And and this question is, I, I think, really important. Have you ever thought about what it actually takes to change? What does it take to grow? As a person. I I just have a ton of experiences in my life, primarily in my early 20s, mid-20s, uh, in relationships where I just left conversations and interactions like completely devastated by how they went. Any, any of you Graham Sixes out there? No? Sixes? Oh, thank you. Thanks. Thanks for being honest. Sixes are 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 just people who are outgoing, they're extroverted, they they love relationships and people, but the the negative side of the 6 is they are crushed when relationships and and people are hurt by their presence. It's just like and they spin in that and they stay in that for for a very long time. I've I've been there. And the devastating interactions that I would have were happening so frequently, I quickly realized something about my presence. I, when I walked into a room, people were instantly uncomfortable. And people were kind of closed, becoming closed off to me, some even like distancing themselves from me. And it hurt. It hurt so much. I, and again, my, my natural tendencies is to just want to be in relationship with people. But what was happening was this constant hurt that was happening, I desperately wanted to change. And so what what did I do? I I set up different ways of interacting. I, I had even like these little like tendencies that would try to guard myself from making the same mistakes. And they would work for like a little bit. But then they would fail. And I would actually go back to the place I was and sometimes even further away. I would actually, things would actually get worse when I would try to fix it, and I wanted to change, but I always failed, and maybe you have something in your life like that as well. Maybe you have something in your life, maybe it's relationally, but even if it's not relational, maybe it's behaviors, maybe it's decisions that you desperately don't want to make. And you try over and over and over again. And they are devastating when you make those mistakes. And you feel them all the time. You set up all these parameters and all these things to guard you from making those mistakes. You continue to make them. There's no change there. You fall back into it. And, and I say that because I think most of you, I don't, I don't know all of you in here. I know some of you. Some of you I know really well. And you're decent people, and because decent people want to be different. They want their presence to be changed. They want their behaviors to look different. And it just seems like no matter what we do, attempt after attempt, time and time again, we just continue to stay the same. We or even get worse. I actually think this is prevalent in the biblical narrative. Like all throughout the Bible, since Genesis 3, people have constantly just gotten it wrong. And no matter what attempts they do at trying to make it right or trying to make themselves over again, they make the same mistakes over and over again. And God's people, Israel, in the Exodus are no different. Pastor Eric talked about this last week. They struggled with waiting, with anxiety on God. And so what do they do? They try to make God themselves on their own terms. They make this golden calf. Probably, if you read the text, it's, it may not even be from malintent. They, they weren't even trying maybe to do something evil there, but they were trying to take matters into their own hands. And they ended up back in the same place as Genesis 3 in the garden, where they were cast out because they did not honor God's design over and over again. Because God ultimately wanted something different for his people. And actually, in Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6, it tells us this glorious plan, this glorious vision for the people of Israel. It says this, You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God desired for his people to be this kingdom kingdom of priests that would be different, they would be changed, they would be transformed into this glorious nation of priests that has access to God and invites others to have access to God. So how does God begin to do this work of making this glorious, transformed people? He gives them blueprints. That's really weird. He gives them like literally an exodus or 25 through 30, and Exodus 35 through 39, we actually see instructions for a building called the tabernacle. And actually we have a picture of what this kind of looks like. I actually took this from the ESV study Bible, so if you have one of those at home, this is a great thing. You can actually Google it as well. You can actually kind of examine this a little more if you want to nerd out. We're going to nerd out a little bit today. But like, Exodus 25-30, through 35-39, through and then finally in Exodus 40, they've built this, this tabernacle, this dwelling place, this thing designed by God in order to transform his people for some reason, and they built it, and God's glory fills this place. And this is like kind of a rough drawing of what it looks like, so we're going to kind of walk through this structure, because I think the structure is kind of important. There are three distinct sections within this. And on the outside of it, you see these walls. The nation of Israel would have been in concentric circles around it. So this would have been placed in the center of all of the nation. The center point of who they were as a people. The, the gate that you see with that, on, the, on the one side would actually face the east. And it was configured that way intentionally. Intentionally. But the three sections that are there, it had an outer court. This outer court was seven and a half feet tall. And just to give you a mindset of how big the structure was, it was roughly 11,250 square feet. This is, so it's pretty massive. It's a pretty good-sized place. The outer court would house this altar this bronze altar would be the first thing you would see upon entrance. And then directly after that would be this wash basin. And then the next two sections are actually in kind of like the same enclosed space. It's called the Tent of Meeting. That's what that thing is right in the middle. And there were two distinct places there. The first one was this, this place called the Holy Place. And inside there, there it housed the, a table that had bread on it all the time. 12 pieces of bread. They would change it out every seven days. Across from that table was this menorah, like a lampstand. It had seven parts to it. And then there was an altar in the middle before this massive veil, this altar of incense that was burning all the time. It was burning, like it would just burn incense and it would fill that place. All the time, but then the holy, place, most holy place, or the holy of holies, was blocked. It was blocked by this massive curtain that was extremely thick, and it would, if The colors were were like blue and and red and purple. Very fine, very intentional design there. But it had these cherubim on it, embroidered on it. These massive cherubim, and inside there was a 15 by 15 by 15 cube that housed the Ark of the Covenant. And that's where God's presence, when it fills in Exodus 40, that's where God's presence would dwell. So you have this structure with tons of things going on. Tons of things going on. But the structure of it was intentionally designed to get the nation of Israel's attention. But also, we see something really interesting, not just in the the construction elements, but how it was delivered in the in the scriptures. There's this use of, of numbers that's really, really intentional. The numbers three, the number seven, and the number twelve. And they're very, very important numbers in the Bible. The number 12 is of the number of pieces of bread was the nation of Israel. God's people was, was represented there. That God's covenant people were always on his mind. Then you have this, this elements of the number seven and the number three. And these are the, the number seven is specific because there are seven movements in the instructions, seven parts to how they're supposed to construct this temple and all the things and all the furniture. There are seven key pieces of furniture outlined in the construction. Of this tent of meeting, there's seven key aspects of it. The number three is important because there are three sections that that we just outlined. The outer courtyard, the tent of meeting, which had the holy place, and the holy of holies, the most holy place. And if you've been tracking through the Exodus series, when you start seeing these numbers repeated over and over again, it's like, do I have your attention? Please, this is going to point to something else. And the number seven is really, really important in the Bible. It's really important to the narrative and to the Hebrew people. Anybody remember what it points back to? Maybe from a few weeks ago. What is it? The seven-day creation. Give a round of applause, please. Yeah, awesome. I'm really, man, I am so pumped up right now. You have no idea. Seven days of creation. It's pointing back to the Garden of Eden. The tabernacle was a structure with imagery that pointed back to where God started everything in the Garden in Eden. Actually, Genesis 2, 8 through 10, it says this, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put man whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst, in the middle of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and the river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. You see, man was created outside of this garden and placed into the garden. And in the middle of the garden was this tree, actually two trees, but specifically a very important tree called the tree of life. And the river flowed to it and flowed from it. This was the same structure as the tabernacle, this was the same structure that is reflected in the three distinct portions of the tabernacle, with the three distinct portions of the garden. Actually, I have, a, I have another chart for you. I love charts. We've got another chart up here, and this is from uh, the theologian G.K. Beale in his book *God Dwells Among Us*. He actually takes this idea, and what we see is that gar- the, we had the outer world. And then the garden that man was placed into, and in the midst of that garden, in the middle of it, was God's presence. Man walked with God. And if you look, the tabernacle has that same idea. It was the outer court, the holy place, and then the holy of holies, the most holy place where God's presence is dwelling. It's not only the literary structure of the tabernacle that points back to Eden, but also all the things that are inside the tabernacle. The ark was the dwelling place of Yahweh, and it was the center of the tabernacle, just like the tree of life was in the garden. The holy place was like the garden. It was filled with food, right? The bread. It was always filled with food to eat for Adam and Eve, just like the garden was The bread was always there in this holy place to show that God always provides for his people. He was always feeding them. The menorah contained seven candles, and it was designed intentionally to reflect the seven days of creation. In the design of this menorah, it had flowers and blossoms on it. Where do they grow? In a garden. And it was filled with lamp day and night, reflecting the words of God. That he created the world first with light, always shining on his people. And then you have this altar of incense, of fragrances, that is a reminder that God hears the prayers constantly of his people. And in the garden, man had unlimited access to God. They would walk with God. They had no shame, and they could dialogue with him and hear from him. But along with those beautiful pictures of Eden, there was also stark reminders of what was lost. What was lost with the communion of God. Genesis 3.24, He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim, a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. You see, man was cast out, and the tree of life was guarded. The roof that covered this tent of meeting inside the courtyard it was animal skins what do you think covered adam and eve as they were cast out what covered up their shame an animal died to cover their shame the veil that blocked the holy of holies in exodus 26 was blue purple and scarlet skillfully embroidered with cherubim a reminder that communion of, guard, of god of the communion with god was guarded like the tree of life was guarded by cherubim access to god was blocked The outer courtyard upon entry was a reminder of the wages of sin because they would see an altar. And what went on that altar were sacrifices that would die. And then they would be burnt into ashes, reminding man that they would return to dust as well. The entrance was also facing the east, the first reminder. The same direction that God cast Adam and Eve out of the garden was to the east. And so it was blocked. Only the priest had entrance. Although there are a lot of rituals and symbolisms and reminders of the Garden of Eden and the extensive requirements for accessing God, I think the tabernacle, the tabernacle itself is, is meant to be this beautiful reminder of God's character, of what he is ultimately trying to do with humanity, what he's trying to do in you and me. Humanity continues to fail over and over again. We constantly fail. But God is giving them a physical object. He's giving them an object lesson to travel with them all the time. And it's teaching them about what he's like. It shows that God does not depart from his people. He, doesn't, he may have cast them out, but really what he's going to do is he reinserts himself amongst sinful people. He, reins, he, he comes in even when you don't deserve it. The intent of the tabernacle is to give them these ritual lessons and object lessons to form them into a new people. The nation of priests that they would always be able to engage with God. And God was establishing this presence in a miniature micro Eden that would travel with them everywhere they go. They could commune with God and relate to them even in their sinfulness because this is the ultimate lesson for the tabernacle this is the most important thing is god understands god understands that his people cannot be transformed without his presence you and i cannot be made new unless we have god's presence or we enter into god's presence we can't be truly human and flourish without his presence in us We will never change. We we will always be defined by our shame and our failures. Being in God's presence does something. It forces us to reconcile. It forces us to ask and look at our moral failures, at what we constantly do. We're forced to take agency over our participation in the sin, recklessness, and destruction in God's good creation. It's not everybody else. It's It's me. It forces us when we go into God's presence. And as we know, the start of any change starts with awareness. Your awareness to your contributions of the wrongs in the world. That's where it begins. Paul David Tripp said this, none of us have the gift of complete self-awareness. So while sin still lives inside of us, there will be inaccuracies in the way that we see ourselves because there will still be pockets of spiritual blindness in us. You see, this gift of self-awareness grows tremendously when we have deep intimacy with the God who created us, when we have deep closeness with him. We see the error of our ways, and this is the beginning of true transformation, of true change. But God's presence does something else in us. It gives us assurance. It gives us assurance that, yes, you do make mistakes, and you fail, and you sin, but it's like the tabernacle reminds us that God's not going to leave you. I'm not giving up. I'm here. Do you see me? And even though we mess up over and over again, you can be changed. You can be transformed. So this is the million-dollar question today. So how do we enter into God's presence? I was talking to somebody about this this week. He's like, I think we should use that field and build a tabernacle. Yeah. I'm like, no, that's not the answer. Don't... Stop. Like, <laughs> I think he's being funny, but I hope he's <laughs> he being funny. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I think this question made me really uncomfortable this week. I, I think it made me uncomfortable because I struggle to answer it. I struggle with this idea of God's presence. Actually, in a lot of ways, I... I feel the weight of that even preaching up here. It's like, do I even know? Do I even experience this? But sometimes the, the simplest solution is almost always best. I was reminded of that this week. We actually engage in this transformative presence of God through prayer. We pray. 1 John 5.14, and this is the confidence that we have toward him. This is towards Jesus, towards God that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. We can trust that God hears us and that he is present with us in our prayer. If I'm honest, I, this is a real internal struggle for me because it's a lot easier for me to do really good things, for me to like serve, maybe to read books and read the Bible and study theology and do all that stuff. And it would be dishonest to say that there, were, there are no rituals and liturgies commanded by God, especially in this text. Like, there are things, there are good things in what they were, God was trying to get them to see and do. We also have liturgies. We have rhythms. We have patterns. And they are intentional and extremely good. We spend a lot of time doing those things every week. We've spent a lot of time planning them, even the songs and the prayers and all that stuff that we do. And they're good, but for what purpose? The entire purpose of all these things that we do is for you and I to engage and commune with God's presence. And I think this is like a major problem in the church is that we have preached and taught that the only way that you and I will change is if we read more books on theology, read more scripture, and be able to defend the faith at a moment's notice. At any moment. But what we find is that knowledge doesn't just change us. We have a bunch of churches that are fully, you know, full of people who are smart and who know their Bible, but they're not transformed. They're not changed. And they're doing good things. But God wants us to be transformed. One one preacher said it like this. It's like you go up to a child and ask them, what's your father like? And they reply, I believe in him. It's like they don't have relationship, they don't have presence with him, but they can recite a bunch of things about him. It's easy for me and it's easy maybe for you to do all the rituals and all the right things with a good heart and never really change and never really actually engage and commune with God. The truly transformed person is a person that prays. This is our calling today that we pray. Prayer is an honest dialogue between you and God. You can't hide. You have to sit with him. It's honesty. He's not afraid of it. Praying to God helps us to explore the depths of the things that we don't even know about ourselves. Like it it forces us to reconcile them. Are there things here for me? We can ask God that. Prayer helps us to sit with God and reimagine the world the way it should have been in Eden when God first made human beings. It gives us new eyes to see the way that we interact with the gifts that God has given us. New ways to see how we treat money, new ways to see how we treat sexuality, provision, and relationships. And they're all intended to be lived out in new, redeemed ways to the world around us. Just like it was in the beginning, before sin was even a part of it. God is transforming us in our time of prayer. And it is no wonder that when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, what language did he say? He said to his disciples, he says, On earth as as it is in heaven. Prayer is this Eden-like experience where you and I can walk with God in his presence. And I I do have assurances for you today. If you don't know how to pray, I'm still learning how to pray all the time. Paul, the Apostle Paul writes this assurance to you and I in Romans 8:26. Likewise, the Spirit, the very Spirit that filled the tabernacle, is in us. The, the the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The very Spirit of God that filled the tabernacle is the same Spirit living in you and me, and He provides us with prayers when we don't know what to pray. Charles Spurgeon put it this way, prayer itself is an art which only the Holy Ghost can teach us. He is the giver of all prayer. Pray for prayer. Pray till you can pray. If you show up, God is going to transform you. He's going to change you. And he is going to move in you in beautiful, wonderful ways that you can't even imagine. And this is the story of the Exodus. Beginning at the beginning in Exodus 1. A very present Yahweh hears the cries of his people. He hears their prayers. And what happens at Exodus 40? We just read it. He showed up. God showed up among his people in this beautiful way and he's showing them that he's always with them wherever they go, wherever they journey. Our transformation as a people into the people that God intended us to be is accomplished by God's spirit in our times of prayer, in our times of communion with him. So pray. This is the calling for you and me. We're all called to this and it's, it's going to do a work in us, and it's hard, but show up, and God will too. Now, to end our time together, I, I want us to kind of go back to the tabernacle, because this is so important, at least it is to me. This tabernacle was a physical reminder to the people of God about his presence with him, but we have to understand it was incomplete, there would have to be something greater, something better for God's people. That, so they could always have presence with him. And we actually see that in John 1:14 in the Gospels. And the word, Jesus, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And this root word dwelt in the original languages in the Bible, it can actually be translated something different. It can be translated tabernacled. Like Jesus tabernacled among his people. He dwelt. He was the living tabernacle. He came. He was the presence of God dwelling amongst sinful people. And he would bring a true transformative work to his people. And the writer of Hebrews, would, who was inspired by the Holy Spirit, he actually understood the tab- Tabernacle through a new lens and through new terms. And this is where the Bible can interpret these hard things for us. We can actually look to Scripture to teach us what was there. And we see this in Hebrews 9, beginning in verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. He continues in verse 23, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. The copies was the tabernacle, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these, for Christ has entered not into a holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. The tabernacle was just a copy. It was a copy of the real thing, of the heavenly places that Jesus has entered into the presence of God, has our priest once and for all, and we have access, permanent access to God, and this assures us that our prayers are heard, and we can engage and commune with God anytime and in any place. But this tabernacle concept doesn't just stop there. It keeps going. And Paul writes this in Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. But you, are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also, you collectively, the church, are being built into a dwelling place of God by the Spirit. When Jesus ascended at Pentecost, when he went into heaven, he poured out his very real present spirit on his people. This means that you and I, if we are in Christ, we are walking tabernacles wherever we go. This means that as we are being transformed in prayer, we take our transformative presence, the trans formative presence of God in us into our homes, our places of work, and our relationships. And we are with God through all of it. He's changing not only us, but the world around us. This is why we serve and why we do what we do to help those in need. This is why we have strive to have good relationships because everywhere we go, we are taking God's presence through the Holy Spirit. And lastly, like, this It's interesting, the Bible begins in the garden with God's presence. The Bible actually ends with God's presence, in like an Eden-like presence at the end in Revelation 21, 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. The anticipation and hope that we have as Christians is that we will be in an Eden again. Heaven and earth will come together and God will be here. And this won't be a small tabernacle or a garden that will just be small. It will expand throughout the whole earth. Every aspect of everywhere we go, we will be in God's presence forever. And it will all be transformed. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 15 as being instantaneous. The transformation that we're starting now will be fully realized and instantaneous like that. And it's going to be a beautiful thing. And we can pray now with the same anticipation. We can pray eagerly that our transformation that is coming is working in us now. And that we can take it wherever we go. And the Bible ends with a prayer. John prays this wonderful prayer. When he hears about this anticipation of God's presence, he says, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. That's what he says. Come quickly. We want you to come. So now... We enter into communion. Communion, like the tabernacle, is a physical reminder of God's presence among us. It is a reminder of the price that was required for you and I to have access to God. On the night when Jesus died, he took the bread that represents his body and he broke it, and he took the cup, which was his blood, shed. And the church is instructed to do this until he returns. Like we will take this feast with him in his presence, completely transformed. A very real presence of God. We will take it again when he comes. If you are not in Christ, we ask that you don't take communion, but rather take this time to pray. Maybe for the first time in your life, enter into God's presence. Enter and and. and, Pray for the transformation that can only come from God, that you would become a new creation, that his presence would be very real in your life. If you are a Christian, you can come and eat with great rejoicing that God is in you, his presence is in you, his spirit is in you, and he's transforming you. And that transformation will come and it will be complete one day and you can rejoice and celebrate that one day you will be made in the glorious image of the Son of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, you are here, and your presence is very real in us. And I am so grateful for this time this week of wrestling with your presence. It reveals so much in me, and I pray that your spirit would work in others here today in a very real way. That transformation would be something that this church practices because we spend time in prayer. I pray for prayer. I pray that you would make us a people of prayer that are constantly being made into your glorious image that we would be transformed and that we would take this into the world and proclaim your glory that's living in us. We thank you for the glory that was seen in Christ and we are grateful that you are working now. Thank you for your body broken and your blood shed for us. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.